Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Fast Money starts right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Coming up on Fast, the ultimate safety trade. The chart master has not one, not two, but the three most defensive charts in the entire market right now. Carter Worth lays them out straight ahead. Plus, dividends in danger, why the next 24 hours could be a major moment of truth for the big banks. And later, we're counting down to Nike's earnings, why options traders say just buy it ahead of tomorrow's report. But we start off today with the big sell-off. Stocks plunging on Wall Street with the S&P 500 dropping more than 2.5% for its worst day in two weeks. And this comes as coronavirus outbreaks spike across the nation. Florida reporting a record jump in new cases today. The governor of Texas saying that there is a major virus outbreak sweeping the state. And New York, New Jersey, Connecticut imposing two-week quarantines for anyone coming into the states from these new hotspots. So given today's news, is the reopening rally now a reclosing sell-off guy? Well, I don't think things are going to reclose. I think that genie's out of the bottle. I don't think there's any way to get people to go back to what we were doing, obviously, a few weeks ago. So the answer to that question is no. But that's actually worse than trying to get people to do it again. You know, I think... I think we tried to do this too quickly. One of the things I said, and I'm not splitting the atom here, a lot of people have said it, the virus doesn't care if you're bullish, bearish, if you want to go to the beach, if you want to play craps in Las Vegas. It has no interest in any of that. It's not going away anytime soon. And as much as you'd love to see a vaccine around the corner, it's just not there. And the numbers are going back. And that's very troubling, especially when you're talking about an economy that's 73% driven by the consumer. The S&P closed today at 3050. Two Thursdays ago, we closed at 3000. So we're basically back to where we were after that big sell-off. And to me, the number that keeps popping up for me is 2790 and the S&P 500. It makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Right? Tim, what did you make of, of today's sell-off, given you're a little bit more constructive on the overall markets compared to Guy? Right. So if you want to take a half full, you just say, well, you know, look where we came into a day like today where there were some very disturbing news on the virus. But uh, the market had been unabashedly bullish. If you look at the investors intelligence numbers, the bull bear spreads were at an absolute bull uh, over bear spread in terms of positioning and at least where the sentiment lies. So uh, what's today's pullback? It's, it's nothing relative to what I think had been the rally earlier uh, not only this week, but late last week, especially as it relates to mega cap tech. Uh, NASDAQ outperformed, will continue to be uh, defensive here. So uh, I, I will certainly throw into the hat that I think that along with the rest of the desk that I think the markets have gotten ahead of themselves. But, but a day like today is not necessarily a reason to start thinking about retesting March. Um, the, the issues on the virus are certainly disturbing. Uh, the issues on the virus are a function of, yes, we, we seem to know a little bit more about the virus and we know what we don't know. But I, I would not necessarily say that the reaction the market had today was all about the virus. It was an opportunity to take profits and the market probably should continue to find those opportunities. Karen, what did you make of the sell-off today and what did you do, if anything? Yeah, so similar to Tim, I mean, I feel like if you step back at all and look at the extraordinary run, you know, in the queues, for example, we went from a 45% uh, you know, gain to 43% or a little less over from the bottom. So 
you know, in the scale of the rally, this is really just a tiny blip. And I think that once we start to see the rate of change of additional uh, infections go down, I think the market will like that. I still think the underpinning of the Fed being there no matter what still exists. So um, to me, I was looking for things to buy, which I haven't found uh, as easy to do lately. Um, one of the thing I'm looking to buy to add to, I already own, is Starbucks. Um, it closed at 73.64, traded as low as 72. I didn't buy it there. I thought, oh, maybe I'll get a chance. It'll come a little cheaper in the, in the coming days. But I, I don't know if I've missed it or not. But so I was looking to buy that. Um, I, I put on a JP Morgan call spread, uh, a one by two, could be an option action kind of thing, uh, for July uh, earnings, because um, I thought that was sort of a cheap way to play not just J.P. Morgan, of course, uh, but the market bouncing back. And so I was looking for things to buy. They didn't quite get there yet, but I don't view anything as radically different. I think, you know, we could be one uh, vaccine release away from the market turning around. One vaccine right. so headline I, I didn't away, see anything materially right? cheap. Headline, that's what yeah. I meant. That, yes, yes, you are correct. I mean, one headline, or one headline about a treatment, or right. what I think might, we, we might also see is the, number, the people who are getting infected now, I think, are on average significantly lower age, significantly younger than what we were seeing before, and I think, therefore, we'll have a significantly lower mortality rate, which makes uh, corona less scary, even if we do have more infections. Right. Dan, you're shaking your head. Well, yeah, not, nothing makes Corona less scary until there's a vaccine that, that is mass like available to the masses. And when you think about what's going on right now with this virus is that it's spreading in areas where they didn't have huge uh, numbers prior and it's spreading in areas where people are not wearing masks. And that's a really big problem. When you think about the fact that, you know, stores and a lot of retail stuff was open in many of these parts in the south and the southwest um, over the last couple of months where places in the northeast were shut down. And now they're having rolling lockdowns of businesses. And it's not going to be dictated from the uh, from the states or it's going to be a local sort of thing. And it's going to be led in the private sector. So to me, I just think that it suggests that the summer is going to be really rocky from an economic standpoint. The economic data is going to continue to stay volatile. When I think about the S&P 500, I'm hard pressed to think of anything other than the mega cap tech stocks that have dragged it up. Obviously, the Nasdaq outperformance reflects that. But then I look at how poorly the Russell 2000 small caps ask act. I look at how poorly the 10-year yield acts. You can say there's a whole host of other things going on there. I see the dollar bounced a little bit today. And I'm not particularly constructive as we head into the summer. I don't mean that we're going to test those March lows or anything like that. But 3,200 in the S&P 500 seems to be some pretty significant technical resistance. Um, but from an economic standpoint, I just say to yourself, listen, you know, the market got ahead of itself. It was basically pricing in a very sound uh, recovery here in the U.S. And I think what the last week or two tells us that it's going to continue to be rocky. And then the last point I'm just going to make is that from a psychological standpoint, the fact that a hot spot like New York and New Jersey are going to now impose quarantines for people coming from places where there are hot spots down in the South just tells you that this is not going away anytime soon. It will remain politicized and therefore it's going to remain volatile in the stock market. Yeah, Dan, you had mentioned uh, where exactly where we want to go to next, and that is businesses deciding on their own, despite what the state is doing, 
to actually shut down locations. Several big companies have announced uh, some measures today. Let's get to Dom Chu with more on this developing story. Dom. All right, so Melissa, let's start with the breaking news from just the last half hour or so where online bank and auto and mortgage lender Ally Financial is rocketing higher after hours after it and privately held credit card issuer Cardworks have mutually agreed to call off their planned merger. Both companies cited the drastically different market and economic conditions resulting from the COVID pandemic. No termination fees will be in play here. Other companies today, like you said, also dealing with the rise in infections. Apple saying it will reclose seven of its store locations in Houston, Texas. The iPhone maker and computer services giant confirmed those locations will close tomorrow as the Lone Star State grapples with a rise in COVID cases that Governor Greg Abbott in Texas is calling a massive outbreak. Apple has now, by the way, reclosed 18 locations in various hotspots around the country. You've got casino operators, Caesars Entertainment, requiring all staff and customers wear masks at all times while inside its facilities. The only time you can't is when you're eating or drinking something. And then there's Disney. Employees at its Disney World Resort in Florida, they petitioned to urge the media giant and government officials to reconsider the opening of the theme park on July 11th next month. The petition was posted on MoveOn.org. It states that reopening the parks is only putting guests, employees and families at higher risk. Melissa, guys, of contracting COVID-19. I'll send things back over to you. Okay, Dom, thank you. Dom Chu. Um, Guy, you had mentioned reclosing. Forget it ain't going to happen. But you know what? It could happen on the part of the private sector deciding, you know what? It may just be too risky to operate in this environment. That's the same effect. Right. That 100% it's the same effect. So it's not the government telling you we're reclosing. It's, it's independent companies. It's private companies. And by the way, it's people saying, you know what? I know things reopen, but do I really want to subject my family to the potential to get this disease at some water park or Disney World? The answer is probably no for most people. And that has the same effect as well. And again, I keep going back to the fact that when you're a consumer-driven economy, it's problematic if people stop spending money. And I know I, I listened to 100 people tell me about the great retail sales number last month up 15 percent. And I get it. And that jobs number got everybody all excited. But uh, that's in the context of some pretty miserable comps going in. Uh, I'm not you know, I, I'm hard pressed to believe we're going to continue on that trajectory. It's, I'm, it's not me, me trying to be dour. It's just trying to paint the picture of what, what I think is going on. And it doesn't look particularly rosy to me, Mel. I mean, I think that there's a psychological... I mean, we like numbers and we like data, but I think there's a psychological component to this as well. And, and that is, you know, Karen, you had mentioned the mortality rates going down because it's younger people being infected. But unless there's a, a change in your attitude, I mean, knowing that the more you're not going to die from it doesn't make you feel better about going out necessarily or does it change your behavior just because you know you're not going to die from it but you might get very very sick from it i mean if you're a college age kid i don't know that it really changes your behavior uh, for me I, you know i i have hardly left the house in three months so um and i i think though that I think even if it does, let's say we have a dent in, in the economic recovery and it's pushed back, let's say, a month or two months, the market isn't, isn't valuing this next quarter of earnings very highly anyway. It's, I still come out with, ultimately, do we have either a treatment or a vaccine? And I believe we do. And is the Fed still there? And I believe they are. And I think that we will see additional stimulus, fiscal stimulus as well. All right. Let's get more on uh, the today's sell-off. Our next guest says today's drop is a perfect buying opportunity. Let's bring in Tony Dwyer, chief market strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Um, Tony, why? 
Well, Mel, actually, you know, we've been using S&P 3000 as our pullback point to get more offensive. So, you know, we're within 50 point of that. And just to be clear, I mean, just because we pick a point doesn't mean you can't blow through it. But to exactly um, what was just said, the things that are in place, there were three things that really drove that final leg lower in March. And it was you had no idea what COVID-19 was. You had no idea what the economic impact was going to be and how long a shutdown would last. And you had no idea what the monetary policy was going to look like coming out of it. And, you know, what that uncertainty in those areas now have some visibility. So Karen had mentioned monetary and fiscal policy is going to continue. We know that we believe that a vaccine and a treatment should at least be announced and exist at some point this year. The market has been driven by monetary policy. So you know, um, based on the economic data, based on the monetary policy, and based on the science of trying to find a vaccine and treatment, in our view, you want to be a buyer of weakness. What areas would you buy? So it's the most insane thing to say, I think, on the planet. But I want to, when we turned offensive, it was based on the economic reopening trade. So if you believe that the Fed is going to continue the stimulus, and by the way, it has been extraordinary. You have never seen this kind of money supply growth in our history. You have never seen this kind of excess liquidity, which is the money supply plus other liquid assets against what you need to actually grow the economy. And you've never seen the promise of a Fed to just look into a camera on CBS's 60 Minutes and say we're just printing money. So with that backdrop, it ultimately comes down to what Karen mentioned, the vaccine and the treatment. If you get that vaccine, it's like a light switch could go on. The challenge that I think the market has, Mel, is that it's trying to figure out, number one, what multiple do you pay for a Fed to the infinity? Right? You can, I've said on the show so many times, you can't fix that with exponentially more debt, but I guess you can fix it with infinitely more debt, um, which is the current game plan. He told us not to worry about that for the foreseeable future. So I believe it's got to be the, re, the economic reopening, which has been correcting since, since we've been looking for this consolidation since June 5th. It's actually interesting, though. As of today, um, as I look at my screen, 56% of S&P components are trading above their, 200, or their 50-day moving average. It was 97% last Tuesday. So the, today isn't the, the only correct. It's been correcting over the last couple of weeks, and it just has shown up in the index today. Hey, hey, Tony, it's Dan. How are you, bud? Dan, how are you, bud? All right. Quick one here. All right. The banks. We have the JP Morgan indicator. Um, it acts horrible. The money center banks act horrible. How do you um, justify the price action there? Forget about what the Fed's doing. Forget about the yield curve. What is it saying to you about the back half of the year or the prospects of a 2021, just a real recovery that starts to build on itself? Is it starting to price in higher unemployment, greater defaults, um, just, just a weaker than expected economy than the stock market at these levels is telling you? Well, it, it depends on what bond market, Dan. To, to your point, the 10-year Treasury is telling you there's going to be a very lame recovery. The bank stocks are telling you it's going to be a, a pretty meek lending environment. But on the other side, you have historical corporate credit new issuance. Well over a trillion dollars has been raised. You've got the money supply numbers growing in the, in the 20s percent. I mean, it is bananas relative to any other period in our country's history. So it depends on what, what stimulative effect of money happens. And, and here's the thing about the banks. People, when the market was going higher, 
in, before that 60 Minutes interview by the Fed, I believe Powell was on there in part because the banks were actually retesting the low. If you remember the Thursday before that 60 Minutes interview where he talked about just printing money and there's no reason to, to expect it to stop anytime soon, um, right before that, that last Thursday, Wells Fargo was rumored to be having to cut their dividend and, ha- and maybe even being acquired by Goldman, and the KBW Bank Stock Index was literally testing its low. And then they just gripped it higher because of that Fed, where it understood that the Fed is going to print money until they get their two mandates. I mean, how many times have I been on the show, and I've looked into the camera, and I said, the guys printing the money mm-hmm. are telling you what they're going to do. And he is very clear in his intention, and it was after that that the banks rallied from what looked like it was a horrible, horrible position. And I think you could be lining up for similar in the banks and the industrials and some of the economic sensitive areas that have already corrected. Tony, always great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you, Mel. Tony Dwyer, Canaccord Genuity. Um, so Jerome Powell saved the banks and the markets. Guy, why don't you believe that Powell has the power anymore? I mean, he, he managed, the Fed managed to lift us off of the March 23rd lows. Why don't you believe him even now? No, I should believe him, absolutely. I mean, it, it, so many people have said, why make this more complicated than it has to be? Tony Dwyer at the head of that list, David Tepper spoke about that years ago. I totally get it. I mean, why fight, why fight what is clearly... Uh, their mandate, and their dual mandate, by the way, is to make sure the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ goes higher, in my opinion. And, and that's something I'm still <laughs> entitled to. With that said, you know, you hit a point of diminishing marginal returns with, 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 these, with these actions. And I think we're getting close to it. And by the way, Dan mentioned, you know, the dollar had a bit of a rally. You start seeing weakness in the dollar, and people might tell you how bullish that's be. I think that could be extraordinarily bearish. And just watch the U.S. dollar here. The U.S. dollar has been weak. If that weakness continues, I do not think this time that's bullish for equities. And that falls at the feet of the Federal Reserve. All right. Let's talk more about the banks. Financials were uh, one of the worst performing sectors in today's sell-off. But our next guest says today's move pales in comparison to what uh, may come as banks gear up for their annual stress test results. Let's bring in Christopher Whalen of Whalen Global Advisors. Chris, great to speak with you. Good to see you. Yeah, nice to see you, Melissa. I so, hope everyone as well. You think that uh, dividends are at risk here across the board or, or just some individual stocks? A couple of months ago, I would have said no. I would have said ending share repurchases, which is worth $130 billion for the top 25, uh, was enough. But, you know, that provisions number the street put out in the first quarter was big. It was up uh, almost 400%. So what we've got to look for in second quarter earnings is what are they doing with provisions? If they come in lower than the first quarter, that tells you they're getting confident and that they have a basic idea what they're dealing with for the year. But if they come in same level or higher, it tells you that we still don't have visibility. And remember, we're talking about credit loss. Mm-hmm. There's no vaccine for credit loss. Um, you know, it's fine to talk about the Fed. I agree with your, your previous guest. I, you know, I've been in and out of these. I, I kicked all of my equities out, common equities, out on Monday. I just own preferred because I want to go higher in the capital structure for a while. I don't want my feet to get wet, if you know what I mean. Right. So um, what I'm saying is that you really got to understand that this, this is a 1930s type situation. This isn't 2009. This isn't about liquidity. It's about credit loss. And the broad swath of America in terms of corporate credits, commercial real estate, 
is going to take a, a big bite out of the bank. So I think losses this year could be twice 2009. Right. I know, you, makes, they, I know you're concerned you know. about commercial industrial loans as well on top yeah, of the uh, CNBS. Consumers great right yeah. now. Um, Home market in Resi, by the way, this year. We're going to do $2.5 trillion in residential mortgages this year. But, Chris, I, I'm wondering, how do you think we should think about provisions? I mean, as I understand it right now, provisions are about half of what they were at their peak 10 years ago for the banks across the board. You said this mm -hmm. is a 1930s scenario, so should they be even higher? Because that would put a serious dent uh, in the banks if they had to just put that capital aside. Well, it's going to consume earnings first and foremost, Melissa. That's, that's how the industry got through 2009. They directed that earnings power at the problem and they dealt with it. Same thing here. You could easily see earnings for this year get consumed by credit costs. And they may get it back later. Remember, provisioning in 2009 was two and a half times what they actually charged off. So it looks ugly up front, but then they recover a lot of value later on. This is about time. And I know everybody you know, wants to see the market come back. I do. Uh, but I also like buying stocks below book value. And that's what I've been doing since I was on last is that, you know, the preferreds, the commons have been very interesting uh, in the bank space. Really, I think a, a very uh, long term opportunity to get in. And you may have another opportunity. I think there will be disappointment mm -hmm. in second quarter earnings. But as the banks can give us more guidance and as we get more data, especially about commercial, which is very lumpy, it's not like looking at consumer credit. It's a very big, very lumpy asset class. Right. Then I think we'll get visibility and these stocks could take off again. You've seen that. Yep. Chris, great to speak to you. Thank you. All right. Be well. Chris Whalen of Whalen Global Advisors. Karen, what do you think? You're an investor in banks. I am an investor in banks. Well, so JP Morgan is my biggest position. I don't believe that they will change their dividend. I think we'll probably hear next, early next week what their strategy is. We'll get some guidance tomorrow with, from the stress test, but I don't believe for, that for JP Morgan that will be an issue. Now, we've talked a lot about Wells Fargo. Maybe that one is an issue. Um, I'm not as, as um, uh, comfortable with their capital level. Also, I think that the yield is ridiculous. That's a stock price thing, but I, I feel like uh, if I were to think of one to be a candidate to cut their dividend, it would probably be Wells Fargo. Tim? So, Chris, uh, it was very bearish on commercial mortgage backs and the potential exposure banks have there. You know, delinquencies in June are down to 10.5%, which is highest ever. Um, if I'm tactically playing banks and based upon what they did in the first quarter off those numbers when they gave those heavy loss provisions, I don't think you buy banks before you get there. I, I think you have to hear what those provision numbers are. But we had a powerful rally that really was that ferocious bank rally and rotation rally. I, I don't see why you don't get that. In fact, we've had that for the last three or four quarters on banks even before COVID-19. So uh, wait for those earnings. Wait for those provisions. Why drive blind? But I actually think you're going to hear more conservative, but ultimately better tone from the banks. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Coming up, if you are seeking safety, the Chartmaster has you covered. Carter Braxtonworth breaks down the three most defensive charts in the entire market. But first, for tracking the trends, the one stock day traders are piling into during today's sell-off. That name when Fast Money returns. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. 
Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back to Fast Money. More big moves in the retail trading world today. We're seeing a major rotation out of one group of stocks and into one big name. Kate Rooney's got the details. Hey, Kate. Hey, Melissa. Airlines had been leaders on Robinhood in the past few months, but today, clients on that trading platform were selling out of those fan favorites. Delta, American, United, and Spirit Airlines all seeing a drop in popularity on Robinhood. That's according to third-party aggregator Robin Track. Those stocks taking a hit today as a spike in coronavirus infections pulled traders away from those reopening names. As far as names that they were buying, there were a few pharmaceutical companies gaining popularity on Robinhood and tech giant Amazon. That was one of the most bought stocks spiking in popularity on the millennial trading platform. Melissa. All right, Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney. Guy Dami, how would you counsel these retail traders at home making these moves? Well, hello, retail traders at home. I hope they're tuning in. And I know Dave Portnoy is watching, so hi, Dave. This is what I would tell them. You know, Delta Airlines, if you recall, we were concerned, concerned, concerned until the day that they announced they were cutting their pilots, basically the numbers in half. And the stock actually had a decent day. And we talked about that being sort of the turnaround. And that was right. And we said maybe it gets to 31, got to 38. Now it's at 28. What are you looking for? In my opinion, the stock trades 60 million shares or so a day. You're looking for a day it trades north of 120 million shares and flushes to the downside. I think you're going to get it, and I think you're going to get it around the 22 and a half, 23 level. That's where you re-enter in the long side, in my opinion, in names like Delta. Yeah, uh, Amazon was down only, finished the day only down 1%, Dan. So I don't know how much of a pullback this was to take advantage of, but it's interesting to see what defensive is in the minds of these traders. Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with sentiment, right? I mean, I think the, the investment world has come to just universally believe that Amazon is the you know pre-pandemic winner, the pandemic winner, and they're going to be the post-pandemic winner. Um, you know, as far as what Guy was just saying, you know, he's kind of old school. He's kind of like there's one hip-hop song on his playlist, his Spotify playlist. It's Rapper's Delight. But this market has been a trader's delight, right? You can get in and out of those things. That trains, plane, and automobile, the thing that the, the Portnoy guys are in, you know, yeah, they go up, they go up until they don't, and you got to trade out of them. And I think that you're going to see a lot of that money come out of that trade in those kind of really the epicenter stocks, and, and then they're going to move into back into the MAGA stocks. And that's just what's going to happen. And I think today's um, underperformance on the downside in the MAGA stocks is pretty telling because you had money come out of the plane, trains, and autos right into the Amazon, the Microsoft, the Google, and the Apple. Tim, you're shaking your head. I don't know if it's because of Rapper's Delight being on guys' Spotify list or if it's something else. Love Rapper's Delight. It was the first great rap song, by the way, hip, hop, hip. Anyway, I won't do it. Um, I'm, I'm shaking my head because <laughs> this isn't trader's delight. This is a case where uh, retail traders were getting out at the bottom. I mean, they didn't buy the bottom. So when they're selling it today after a 30 to 40 percent pullback, uh, it's nothing to do cartwheels over. And, and I would argue that a lot of people have been misdirected on this. So um, if anything, a day like today, when you get the kind of news we got on New York quarantining other states and whatnot, I think it's bulls for airlines. In other words, from the price action in terms of the sentiment, that, that actually, I would be on the other side of that trade. In terms of Amazon, it's been up 54% in the last six months to the S&P. So, I mean, it was safe before, during, and after. And I think that trade continues. Karen, quick comment. Yeah, I mean, let's say you and I started a podcast where we just were betting on sports for whatever reason. We like their uniforms. I don't know, the, the golfer, you know, 
We thought it was good looking. We had no whatever. idea what the yeah. hell we were doing, but we were having a good time. And we were doing it every day. And then all the, the real sports gamblers who really know what they're doing started listening to what we were doing. Wouldn't that be kind of ridiculous? <laughs> Point taken, Karen Feynman. And I well mean, that's put. <laughs> guy, okay, okay. raise your hand, guy. Go. It's a free-for-all now. Go though. ahead. Great uniforms. No, it's, first of all, I love the sugar cane uh, gang as much as anybody. <laughs> and I have them on my, my Spotify playlist. Just so sugar you hill. know, sugar hill, but I, sugar cane, sugar hill. Anyway, I mean, you know, it's we great have limited time. Go ahead. Is that it? No, no that's it. <laughs> Coming up, it was a sea of red on walls for you today. And if you think there's more pain ahead, the Chartmaster has the three most defensive charts in the market. And later, Tesla hitting the skids. We'll find out what JD Power had to say about the electric car maker in its first ever ranking of the company. Fast Money is back in two. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back to Fast Money. Markets tumbling today as a surge in coronavirus cases weighs on investors. But if you're seeking shelter in this storm, the Chartmaster has not one, not two, but three of the safest charts in the market, so he says. Let's get to Cornerstone Macro's Carter Worth. Carter. All sorts of good stuff. Um, but before we look at them, you know, you guys were talking about, obviously, the big question, don't fight the Fed. Listen, the Bank of Japan has been entering in program after program for a lot of years. Negative rates, buying stocks, and the Nikkei peaked in 1989. It's not necessarily a fact that the Fed can save this. Let's look at a few charts. First, the S&P. Um, what we know is, of course, you have a collapse. You can see that there. You have a ricochet. And we have now a breakdown, a breakdown below the trend line that's been in effect since the March low. Now, to be fair, in uh, the early part of April, we had about a 7% sell-off. In the early part of May, we had about a 7% sell-off. And here we have another 7 8% sell-off. So is it a buy the dip? A lot of people believe that. The break in trend is my issue, and I think uh, there is more downside. In any event, uh, the first of three very uh, sort of defensive areas of the market. Let's look at gold. We know that gold is sitting at well-defined tops at a common level. Take a look at the first chart. So the importance of the 1785 level, you can see it there. You can draw the lines however you want. But what we know is it's toying with the prospect of breaking out above those tops. Now look at the second chart and look at the authority of the 1785 level, not just in the first chart, but see here, you can see it goes all the way back to 2012, meaning this is a very big juncture. And it takes a lot of buying pressure to clear a former high. But once you do, you're often in free sky, free to move higher, no supply. So to that end, look at the third chart. And you have here 
Uh, I've included back to the peak in 2011. We know that gold did peak in the summer of 2011 at 19.25 an ounce or thereabouts. And there's not much supply ahead. It was only three months of trading uh, where gold was above where it is now. And so uh, any movement here, and we think it's going to be very dynamic, right, will put in play the highs and then ultimately uh, much bigger highs. And then uh, finally, take a look at gold and its relationship to all commodities. The fourth chart for gold is a two panel. You see on the top panel, that's gold. Uh, we're basically back at the highs. But look at its relative performance to all commodities. On the bottom is the all commodity uh, index and it's equal weighted. So orange juice, cocoa, sugar, corn, but also oil, natural gas, aluminum, tin, copper. And gold is just steady and orderly making new all-time highs. It's a beauty. So uh, one area. Second area to uh, consider, I have here a two-panel chart as well. And what this is, this is the towers combined. So it's American Tower, SBAC Communications, and CCI um, on top, plotted as a basket, as one security. And they're REITs, of course, but their characteristics are, are very defensive. And on the bottom, the sector that has the lowest beta of all sectors is the staples. So the bottom line on the two-panel chart is the basket's performance relative to consumer staples. So we see absolute performance up and to the right out of AMT, Crown Castle, and SBAC. But their relative performance to the most stable area of the market, staples, with a beta of basically 0.7, is also uh, making new highs. And then finally, a third area, just picked one stock, Lilly. Uh, look at that chart and look at that big move two, three weeks ago, uh, huge pop off the 150 day moving average, uh, good news, phase three in their breast cancer drug, but either way, uh, a steady, orderly, defensive name. So you have gold, you have the towers, uh, cell towers, and you have a nice, large cap, steady drug stock. Carter, thank you. Carter Braxton Worth with the three defensive uh, charts. Guy, I know you're a sucker for two panel charts. I know I am. I like to see the relative performance <laughs> on the bottom. But which would you like to, I mean, <laughs> which one do you like the best? Whoa, gold, no question about it. But did you catch Carter dropping some Luis Yamada stuff there? I mean, he went straight to the, the bigger the base, the higher in outer space or something to that effect. <laughs> I'm totally digging it, even though I'm not seeing him one. Number two, Gold, absolutely. Gold is breaking out. The miners have pulled back, starting to rally a little bit. And if you do see that weakness in the U.S. dollar that I anticipate, I think that's going to add a little turbocharge to this gold move. So for me, out of the two-pronged attack or three-pronged thing you just told me about, Carter, it would be GLD. Tim? Yeah, I think if you if you look at the, the gold chart, the relative gold chart, I like the bottom panel um, because I think what's most interesting about gold is it may also though be pulling other commodities higher or at least the messages on the weaker dollar. And, and remember, commodities don't necessarily move year to year. They move in five and 10 year clips. And the last time we had a real commodity super cycle, it actually began in 2002, 2003. Um, that came after a major recession. I'm not saying the conditions are exactly the same, but uh, I, I think that's what's interesting. There's no question to me gold is going to all-time highs. It's a question of how high. Carter thinks extremely high relative to the old highs, uh, and I think he's right. But I think other commodities are also worth owning here. All right, coming up, California's battle against gig economy giants getting a little more uh, headway, headway today, getting more heated. What does the state's latest move mean for Uber and Lyft? And later, we're counting down to earnings out of Nike, why options traders are expecting new all-time highs. We've got those stories straight ahead.
Welcome back to Fast Money. California ramping up its legal battle against the gig economy. Deidre Bosa's got the story. Deidre. Hey, Melissa. California's attorney general is getting ready to file a preliminary injunction tomorrow that would force Uber and Lyft to treat their drivers as employees. Now, AG Xavier Becerra, along with the city attorneys of San Francisco, L.A. and San Diego, they filed a lawsuit against the ride-sharing companies back in May, saying that they were misclassifying their drivers under AB5. That's California's so-called gig economy law. Now, we've been talking about this battle for months. There's a group of drivers who want the benefits and the protections that come along with being full employees over the pandemic lawmakers also taking note that gig workers, they're on the front lines as essential workers, but they do lack those protections. On the other hand, guys, there's a group of employees that enjoy their status as contractors because it gives them flexibility. So they don't want to be full employees. Now, this is critical, of course, for Uber and Lyft's business models. Having to treat drivers as employees could force them to shut down service in California or raise prices dramatically for riders. Keep in mind that San Francisco and L.A. are two of Uber's biggest markets globally. So the stakes are high here. And California may only be the beginning as other states consider their own gig economy legislation. So, Melissa, not an investor's or trader's delight either, if that were to happen. Back to you. <laughs> You're listening, Deidre. Thank you, Deidre Bosa. I go straight to Dan Nathan on this. <laughs> That's some serious skill by D. Bosa watching our prior segment. I, I mean, here's the thing. You know, we've been talking about this story for a while now, and, and it's interesting that the pandemic has breathed some new light into these business models. We know that Instacart, DoorDash have raised a lot of money at some high valuations just in the last month or so. Um, but the point that she makes, I think, is the most important one, is the union economics on these rides and what that means when they have to start classifying some of these workers and the cost associated with that. Um, you know, that's going to be the headwind here. You know, I really have liked Lyft here. I'm bullishly positioned in the name with options, um, you know, but breaking 30, there's a lot of room to the downside here, especially if the reopening trade doesn't go um, as planned. That being said, I think coming out of the pandemic with a vaccine in the next six to 12 months, I think these stocks are ready to party a little bit here, um, but they really need some clarity on this worker issue. All right, coming up, Nike on the move over the past three months. Are the traders saying just buy it ahead of earnings will bring you the trade? Plus, Tesla coming in dead last in J.D. Power's quality study. We'll have all the problems they saw ahead when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. For the first time ever, Tesla included in J.D. Power's initial quality survey. But it might have been happier to stay off that list. Phil has got all the details. Hey, Phil. And Melissa, it's, it's sort of an interesting survey because they're not technically ranked with all the other uh, automakers, but they do have enough responses from Tesla owners. And we'll talk about the Tesla results in just a bit. Let me show you the top and the bottom automakers in terms of quality, initial quality. This is what people say after 90 days. You've got Dodge and Kia tying for number one. In third place, it's a tie between Chevrolet and Ram. At the bottom of the list, four luxury names. Uh, some of these might surprise you. The one at the bottom will not be a surprise. You've got Mercedes, then Volvo, Audi. And coming in number 31 out of 31 brands, Land Rover which is often at the bottom of these lists, and yet they have a lot of intense loyalty and sales remain strong. As for Tesla, while it's not officially ranked, they did get answers from about 1,300 Tesla owners in 35 states, and based on that, J.D. Power says that the 
Initial quality is the worst in the auto industry in terms of problems per 100 vehicles. Most of the problems have to do with fit and finish, things like wind noise, squeaks and rattles, the kind of things that people say, look, this is what happens when you push manufacturing in order to build and sell more vehicles. All of this coming on a day when NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, has launched an investigation into what's going on with the touchscreens of 63,000 Model S's. These are Model S's built between 2013 and 2016. They'll look into why a number of owners have reported having problems with those touchscreens. Whether that leads to a, a recall or some kind of a notice from the company remains to be seen. As you take a look at shares of Tesla once more, remember that next week we'll get the Q2 delivery data from Tesla and whether or not they have to alter their guidance, Melissa, for full-year deliveries. Remember, they still technically are saying that they plan to deliver at least 500,000 vehicles worldwide this year, though, you give, you know, given what we saw with the uh, factory shutting down in April and a number of the other issues around the world, the question is whether or not they still plan on keeping that guidance. Yeah, it'll, it'll be much harder to hit that year-end target if, if they fall short in the second quarter. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau, obviously bigger issues for Tesla. I would, I would imagine, Karen, that this doesn't change anybody's mind when they're going online and buying their Tesla, that there's some squeaks and rattles and things like that because of a J.D. Power survey. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. And also, I think investors, it's not going to change their mind because the thesis is it's not a car company. So I guess it doesn't matter if they come in last. And I actually do think as they make more cars that they will be able to improve that. But... I mean, on evaluation, I just, I just can't get there at all. I think this entire panel is bearish on Tesla. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't short it. You, yeah. You, Go ahead, Guy. No, it's, it's hard. You open end to it. It's hard for us to ascertain who's going next in this open-ended <laughs> environment. But, I mean, am I, there are a lot of reasons to be bearish Tesla. I mean, but I don't think the J.D. Power uh, survey is one of them. As a matter of fact, they probably look at it as some sort of badge of honor. They're down there with, as Phil mentioned, Porsche and Audi and Mercedes-Benz. I mean, the top of this list is Kia, which I'm sure is a lovely automobile. But, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's just yeah. trying to keep it real here. You know what I'm saying, yeah, Mel? Keeping it real. G-Swiz. Coming up, Nike set to report earnings tomorrow and options traders are betting on a slam dunk for shares. We'll break down that trade. Plus, Jim has got the governor of Rhode Island on Mad Money tonight talking coronavirus reopening plans for the Ocean State. Don't miss that coming up top of the hour. Welcome back to Fast Money. Nike's quest to break back into positive territory for the year, taking a hit in today's sell-off. But options traders betting that earnings tomorrow could help the stock hit all-time highs. Mike Coe's got the action. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. So Nike traded well over two times its average daily options volume today, and we saw call volume outpacing put volume by about three to one. Now, right now, the options market is implying a move of about 5.5% after they report earnings. That's slightly higher than the 5.1% that they've averaged over the past eight quarters. But much of the betting in the options market was bullish. The 105 strike was the most active one. The one that I was looking at was the July 2nd weekly 105 calls. Those were for trading for about $1.30. Buyers of those calls are obviously betting that the stock is going to be above that 105 strike price by expiration, which is going to be a week from this coming Friday. That would represent new all-time highs. And I think the two notable things here is, number one, that that would be new all-time highs. And secondly, 
that these are very cheap options. These cost just a little over 1% of the stock price, and that might be one of the reasons with it toying with this key level that options traders are looking to toy with that strike in particular. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Coe. Tim, um, what are some of the key issues for Nike? Obviously, China would be one, and strengthen direct-to-consumer, and if yep. that continues... Yeah, I think you nailed it. The product mix and, and where the exit data for May will come from China, if it's 20 percent or north, uh, I think in a world of, of stratospheric valuations, Nike, even relative to itself, is the space wrangler. I mean, I think you want to own it. And, and that is, by the way, a reference to widespread panic fans out there. Um, I do think Nike is a name that continues to be uh, well above the rest. The DTC business it continues to grow the margin base. Uh, and I think the company should be re-rating in an environment where companies really don't have a good uh, insight into their business. This company seems to be able to give you as much as anybody, uh, and I would stay with it. What do you think of Nike, Karen? Are you, are you still in Foot Locker? I'm not, uh, but I, I like, like Nike. I'm not long. I um, agree with a lot of what Tim said. I think, you know, they're direct to customer. They're very, they've been ahead of the curve there. That'll help them. And I think that a lot of stimulus checks will be converted or have been converted this last quarter into sneakers as well as people wanting to be comfortable at home. I think the numbers are going to be good. Well, Tim's comment about the widespread panic may have gone over Guy's head. I know that it was a nod to Dan specifically on this panel. <laughs> you know, I actually I saw widespread yes, panic in concert. One of the last concerts I saw in late February yeah. at the Beacon Theater on the Upper West Side. Um, listen, real quickly on Nike, you know, they, they right. last reported in the throes of the sell-off in March, on like March 24th, when the stock was near its lows with a seven handle on it. What I think is going to be most interesting about their guidance tomorrow is that on that last call, they were already talking about China reopening. So any commentary that they can extrapolate from reopening in China a few months ago to how it might go in the U.S. is going to be really important. Yep. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trade. Here's where we stand uh, after the close of trade here. S&P 500 down by 2.6%. The Nasdaq Composite breaking an eight-day winning streak, coming off of the record highs from yesterday, down by 2%. And the Dow losing 710 points by the close, down 2 and 3 quarters percent. Time now for the final trade as we look forward to tomorrow. Tim Seymour. So during uh, at least volatile markets, you send to people will cut their flowers and keep their weeds. Nike is a flower. It's a beautiful flower. And in fact, I would own it into earnings. Nike. Karen. Yeah, I'm actually hoping we get a, a, another down day so that some of these things that got a little too frothy can uh, pull back to areas that I want to buy them. And the first first one is Starbucks. So I'm hoping I get a chance around 72 tomorrow, which is where it bottomed out today. And I'd love to add to it there. Dan Nathan. You know, Tim is one of those beautiful flowers I used to line up on the lacrosse field and just yard sale, totally. I mean, that was just the weakest thing I've ever heard. Um, but, but that being said, uh, you know, Carter on the defensive trades, I think Kroger is a really interesting one here. The stock trades really well. The chart looks great. And any bad news on the reopening restaurants delayed, that's going to be good for Kroger. Guy Downey. You know, California, our San Francisco office has the great Josh Lipton, who does his Magnum PI things on Friday. Now we got Debo. That's a great nickname, Dan Nathan. Way to go. Debo. And what I'll tell you is Dollar Gen is just a monster here, to quote John Malkovich in uh, Rounders. 
All right. Thanks for watching Fast to See back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Bad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.